podcast, Everyday Sublime, Shedding Light on Yin Yoga and Meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm a Yin Yoga and Meditation teacher and trainer, as well as a licensed acupuncturist. This podcast is intended to be an in-depth exploration of the intersections between Yin Yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. And my hope is that the talks and conversations in the podcast will support either your practice and or your teaching of Yin Yoga and meditation. Okay, so in today's episode, I begin a four-part series with yin yoga teacher and author Bernie Clark. In my opinion, Bernie's books on yoga are among the best in the industry, and in this series, Bernie and I discuss some themes in his brand new book, Your Spine, Your Yoga. This book, Your Spine, Your Yoga, is part two in Bernie's Your Body, Your Yoga trilogy. And this new volume is essential reading for any yoga teacher. And I want to make that really clear. Even though Bernie is known as a yin yoga teacher, his Your Body, Your Yoga trilogy is not yin yoga specific. His books are invaluable resources for anybody with a body in the movement world. And Your Spine, Your Yoga looks at numerous aspects of the spine and how they affect what we should and should not consider doing in our yoga practice. In this episode, I ask Bernie to define some important terms that every yoga practitioner should be fluent with. We discuss the difference between stability and mobility, and how best to train each. We look at the differences between stress and stretch, as well as flexibility and mobility. As always, Bernie proves to be a real treasure trove of knowledge and practical wisdom. But before jumping into the episode, I have one small favor to ask of you. As a way to support this podcast, I humbly ask that if you find this podcast of value to your practice or teaching, that you consider sharing an episode or a link to the podcast in either your social media channels, like in Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, or in a blog or newsletter. This would be enormously helpful to me. So far, I have kept this podcast sponsor-free, and I intend to try to keep it that way. I personally don't appreciate the intrusion of advertisements when I'm enjoying a podcast. So for now, I'm keeping them out of Everyday Sublime, which means as a free podcast, I support and back this podcast with my own sweat, tears, and blood. And it's a sacrifice I feel privileged to make. And all I ask of you is that if you find value in this podcast, please share it with someone else that might find it valuable too. And I thank you in advance for that support, and thank you for being here today. Okay, without further ado, I once again bring you Bernie Clark. Today I am with Bernie Clark. Bernie, Welcome back to the podcast, and thank you for coming on again. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be back. It's really good to see you. Um, So today, uh, we're going to start a series of small conversations around your new book, which is titled Your Spine, Your Yoga. And this is part two of a three-part trilogy that you've been writing, um, looking at 
human variation and how to think about the implications of human variation for optimal health, specifically with a lens on what's going on in yoga practice. Does that sound more or less? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, I call it the Your Body, Your Yoga series or trilogy. And this is the book on the axial body, the spine. Yeah. You know, and before we really get into kind of the details on this, I just want to start with a, a full-throated thank you to you for this work. Uh, the first volume, Your Body, Your Yoga, was excellent and uh, really looked at the hip joint, the knee joint, the ankle, um, and pl put out in plain English uh, how there's all different, all sorts of variables that influence how someone will move and how they'll be able to execute a certain posture. Um, that book was a tour de force. It was at least 300 pages, as I remember, with endless footnotes. Second volume here, your, your Spine, Your Yoga, is equally long. It's 300 pages with a thousand plus footnotes. Um, and you're focusing in this book on the axial skeleton, which I'll ask you to define in a moment. But right. um, in the reviews that I've seen on, in the book, uh, there's certain M words that keep coming up. Monumental, masterpiece. Uh, I think I use the word miraculous um, because it just is staggering how you have been able to pull together such a breadth of research and sort of established evidence and then synthesize that in a way that is both organized um, and cogently expressed so that it's really applicable to people, specifically yoga teachers. Um, and the only conclusion I can come up with is that you, this is your dharma, you are the perfect person to deliver this perfect uh, teaching tool uh, for teachers, and um, I just really can't thank you enough for, for the, your labor on this. Um, I don't know, I mean, the fact that you've done two of these volumes already um, within a short period of time just seems outstanding. Well, thanks for those kind words, Josh. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a labor of love, but I have to give a, a, a big pranam to Paul Grilly because it's, this is really his work. I just fleshed it out and did the research and put the footnotes in, as you say. But these ideas really originate with Paul and his observation of human variation and what it means to us and what stops us, tension and compression. Right. So I just basically, he, he pointed me down the road and he uh, took me by the hand a few times to make sure I was going down the proper uh, side of the road. But uh, all I did was just flesh out his concepts. So. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that came up actually, I think, in the foreword or the introduction that you wrote, where you, you did give nod to Paul for his pioneering work, but it also sounded like there was, I couldn't really tell if I was reading it correctly between the lines, whether there was a slight tension or back and forth between you two, where, he, was he encouraging you to try to keep it simpler <laughs> in this book? Yeah, you've got the results of the simplification. <laughs> so I kind of failed miserably in that. Uh, if you compare Paul's books, they're nice, short, sweet. Here's the concept. Here's the applica applicability of it. But I just kept getting fascinated by all the details. And although I, I, it was Paul's idea to put a lot of the details into a web appendix so it didn't burden down the actual book and the, the reading of it, there's just things that I just found so interesting that I just couldn't throw it away. So I just shoved them off off there. And even then, there's a lot of things I had to take out. Because most people won't have the patience to get into that level of detail. Yeah. Well, you know, 
before before we go into sort of the the, the heart and content of the book, um, maybe it, it might be good to just refresh what the big intention of the book of these books are, and then um, even mention a little bit about the organization of the books because I think these books can be read in a variety of different ways depending on the level of interest uh, or intention of the, the reader. So in terms right. of the overall intention, um, it, it, it does seem like you're, you're just ex exposing the, the sort of the practical implications of human variability for, in this case, specifically physical exercise. Yeah, there's three overarching themes in the series. The first is the reality of human variation. And we got into a stage in yoga teacher trainings and yoga teaching where alignment became king. And everyone was supposed to mimic the exact same alignment as the teacher. And the teacher got it from her teacher, which may go back to Iyengar or some of the other earlier teachers. But everybody's different. It'd be like going to a doctor and getting one medicine for everybody. You know, that may work for most people, but aspirin doesn't work for everybody. In the same with alignment. There are no universal alignment principles. There's personal alignment. Alignment is important, but you can't tell me that where my knee should point is the same as yours because it depends on the structure of your bones. I like to say it depends on your biography and your biology. Hmm. So that's one big thing. And this is something that Paul was bringing up in the 1990s, trying to make people realize there is no one right place for your feet to point in down dog and mountain pose and warriors because everybody's different. The second theme is the fact that we need stress. Yes, you can do too much. That's called distress. But you need some stress. Stress is good. Good stress is called eustress. If you make this binary and, oh, no, you shouldn't do that pose because you're stressing the knee. Well, yeah, you could overstress the knee, but that doesn't mean you should never stress the knee. In this latest book, your, your spine, your yoga, it comes back. A lot of people say, oh, you've got uh, osteoporosis or something in your back. Therefore, you should never do flexion. Well, as soon as you make it binary, never do or always do, you're guaranteed to make those tissues weaker, to atrophy them. You need stress. Yes, you can do too much, but just because you can do too much doesn't mean you should do nothing. So the second big theme through this whole series is you need stress. And the third is the answering the question of what stops me. And the answer is either going to be tension or compression. As you work through your yoga practice, you're working through tensile resistance, the muscles, the fascia, the ligaments. They resist being stretched out, but at some point you're going to stretch them as far as they can go. And now what's stopping you is the body hitting the body. In the spine, if we do a back bend for most people, and it doesn't take very long, their spinous processes, those bumps you feel on the back of your spine, they're hitting or they're kissing, as it's called. Once that occurs, no amount of stretching the front of the body is going to work. You've reached the limit of what your body can give you. And that may mean you'll never do a wheel pose or you never do. Uh, this is big, deep back bends, and that's okay. Not knowing that you've reached your limit, though, makes a lot of people try too hard, and that's when they overstress the spine and maybe break some joints. So these are the three main themes throughout the books. Right. Yeah, and the last one is a, a little bit of a sore topic for me, only because I I, I was pretty injured in a Iyengar class doing dropbacks years back, where um, I sort of put my faith in the teacher, and uh, working with my own panic and trepidation of t around doing it was uh, brought into a, a drop back um, and 
the next day I was sort of barely able to walk and found myself in a chiropractor's office for, for a long time and, and eventually was diagnosed with a stress fracture. From, wow. um, but Gosh. maybe as a way of um, segueing into some of the specifics that you get into in looking at the axial skeleton, um, I think this line came from BKS Iyengar. I may be misapplying mis, uh, mis, uh, it to him though. But there was a line that I remember hearing early on in my yoga life that you are as young as your spine is flexible. Mm-hmm. And, and I uh, f- remember feeling extremely motivated by that sentiment, that thinking, oh, you know, okay, I'm going to really preserve my youth and keep myself nice, young, and limber by uh, working at forward folds and backbends particularly. Um, right. And your, I would say your book is a, a way of uh, disassembling that, <laughs> that claim, <laughs> claim and, and, and exposing it for, uh, for the flawed logic that it contains. Um, but that brings up a, sort of a, a, a short glossary of terms that we may want to sort of lay out and define. Um, right. And it's sort of in the subtitle of your book um, where you're encouraging people to develop stability and mobility for the spine and they are not to they are not the same thing um, and particularly I would say and I think you, this uh, I gather from the book is that the yoga world ten, or yoga land tends to have an asymmetric um, preference and over over evaluation of the importance of mobility and depreciates uh, or underappreciates the the importance and value of stability that's um, correct we worship mobility and we admire the yogis on Instagram or in a cover of a yoga journal magazine that can do deep spinal movements, deep backbends. Yeah. And we're fascinated by contortionists who can do that. But the fact that it takes a contortionist to do that should give us a little warning sign there. This is not normal. This is not usual. We're not built to do that. These people have very special bodies. But in our yoga room, we keep trying to make the spine go deeper and deeper and deeper. Stuart McGill, who's one of my biggest influences, he's a, a spine biomechanics who worked at the University of Waterloo. He noticed that couch potatoes never hurt their backs. It's flexible people who hurt their back. It's the yogis, the gymnasts, the athletes, the dancers. They're the ones who have back problems because they keep using their back over and over and over again. And they're the ones who are putting at risk because they're too mobile. Pause there for a second. Pause there for one second, though, because that, that sort of... I, I, I can be on board with the idea that, you know, people that overuse their spine in, in these, these various athletic endeavors do create back problems. But it also seems like it seems counterintuitive to say that couch potatoes don't injure their back because I just I, I guess I have an availability bias around people that I know that don't use their their back that much. And, and they also have back problems. And I see that as a clinician. Yeah, he's so, being slightly facetious when he says that. Okay. But it is true that it's only when you're taking your spine to its limit of its range of motion that you're really going to injure it. And if you're never really moving the spine to that way, you may have other type of back issues, but they won't be because of the mobility issue. He cites, and I quote him in my book, a case where a fairly senior famous yoga teacher came to him because she was having chronic back pain. And one of the things Stuart will do is to watch people just as they're sitting, as they're walking, as they're moving. And then he like to figure out, okay, what's causing the pain? So it's something called provocation therapy. So he said, well, 
what do you do to make the pain happen? So she sat down into a twist and held the twist for a bit. And then it took her a long time to get out of the twist because it was so painful. And he simply said, well, I see where your pain's coming from. That pose, don't do it. And this was just devastating to her because she was a yogi. She's supposed to be able to demonstrate these poses, but she was in pain. And she wasn't allowing the body to heal because she kept thinking I had to have this range of motion in order to be a teacher. Right. It, I mean, the logic of it is is kind of astounding. It's almost as though someone who is going to a doctor with um, complaining of, 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 of a burn on their hand. <laughs> the doctor says, well, I, like, what are you doing to get that? Well, I'm putting my hand on this hot, really hot unit for a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stop doing it. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it is uh, often an overuse problem. And the spine is designed to be a coupler between the upper body, the shoulders, the arms, and the lower body, the hips and the legs, which we call the appendicular body. The axis or the core of the body is the link between those two. And the axis is supposed to allow forces to go from the upper body to the lower body. For instance, if you're a sprinter, you're moving your arms up and down, up and down, and that force, that rhythm is transferred from your core, from the axial body to the legs, and the legs can actually move faster. And vice versa, from the legs up to the upper body. If you're a golfer, you're using your legs to be able to push the body forward and to twist and get more of a uh, momentum into the golf club. So it's a coupler. And while it's doing that, that service, it's meant to be as neutral and as stable as possible. It's only when it's not under load and it's not transferring forces from one part to another that we can start to enhance its range of motion. But that's a secondary function of the spine. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we, we mix that up totally in yoga. We should be focusing more on stability and then more on mobility. They're both important, but you can't just do one and not expect that the other is going to suffer from it. So you have a you have a pretty good def, I think a working definition of those terms in the book. But do you want to put those out on the table right now? Like if for stability and yeah, what, um, how, do you, how do you define a stable spine or a stable joint or a stable structure? in the body? Stability is when there's the least amount of force that would, would move, move the tissues, or it takes the least amount of force to resist those forces. So when, when, when a structure, or like say the spine, is resistant to movement and it doesn't require a lot of counterforce to resist that movement? Well, it takes the least amount of force to to uh, resist the movement. So when something is stable, it's solid, and you can apply force to it and it's not gonna be pushed out of alignment, if you will. Okay. Then we say it's quite stable. If something is unstable, then the least amount of force will make it topple over. Okay. So like imagine a block of bricks. You know, you just push a little bit, and they'll fall apart. But if you can get some guy wires to tighten them up, and now they're nice and stable, but there's certain alignments of those bricks which are gonna be more stable than the other. That means they can resist forces better than if they're out of alignment. Okay. And mobility then, in contrast? Mobility is a couple of things. Mobility is not just your range of motion, your flexibility, but your ease of motion. And this also has a neurological function. Your technique is part of mobility. Um, Right now, you're not conscious, but when you lean forward, there's a whole bunch of muscles acting at the same time to keep the body stable. 
and you know your stomach muscles may engage, but your back muscles engage, your hip muscles engage, everything starts to engage. Well, that, that's a coordination, that's a technique that the body has adopted through years of practice. The same thing in our yoga practice, we have to adopt a proper technique in order to be as mobile as, as safely as possible. So you can almost think of it as a spectrum. There's range of motion, and that's flexibility, but there's ease of motion, that's mobility. I would, as you're speaking, you know, a phrase that I've, I've heard out in the blogosphere is, you know, it's not just range of motion, it's not ability to move to a certain endpoint, but the ability to quote unquote own the range of motion. I think gym, gymnast teachers, you refer to this, like, can you own that range of motion? And would you, would you kind of in a colloquial way put that under this, this definition of mobility that there's an ease of it, but there's also a command within that mo range of motion? Yeah, I'm not really familiar with that terminology. I'd have to think about it for a bit. Um, it, you know, I think it, it gets to the point of like maybe at, at a certain range of motion, if you're, if you don't quote unquote own it, and I, again, I, I'm using this term loosely, but you don't own it, then you are so, you are vulnerable to injury because you don't have enough strength to be at that range of motion, or there isn't enough stability at that range of motion. Yeah, I could kind of see that. In the book, I have about six terms that I think people often confuse. The first is stress and stretch. These are different terms. Stress is the force we apply to tissues. Stress, stretch is the elongation that may occur. Then flexibility is the range of movement of a joint. You can put a, a joint under stress and it may move. And how much it moves is a measure of your flexibility. Mobility is the ease with which it moves through that range of motion. And then we have the terms of hyperflexibility or hypermobility and dangerous hypermobility, which I like to make a distinction between, between those. Mm -hmm. If you're just looking at mobility and flexibility, it's the ease, whether you're calling it, you own it, but it's, it's how you move through your range of motion. Right. And coming back to the sort of the simple binary between stability and mobility, uh, the, the, a core thread uh, sort of woven throughout the whole book, I would say, is that based on your intention of whether it's to increase stability or increase mobility, you will work in a different manner. And, yes. and, and it's, it's, once you, when you read it, it's easy to, to sort of, I, I think, rock and get your head around it. But um, if you step away from the, every time I step away from the book, if I don't see it written out, it kind of gets a little twisted around in my own head. So let me see if I can parrot this back to you and then you can clarify it if I get it wrong. But it's the idea that if your intention is to create stability, you limit the joint's range of motion when it's under stress. So you, you apply force to it by, and, and, and maybe contract the muscles to limit its range of motion. But if your intention is to increase mobility, then you deload or, or remove the force on the joint and explore it, a healthy range of motion for that, for that joint. Right. This is the results of biomechanical research of Stuart McGill and many others. But a good example is if you hold your right forefinger out and then you stiffen it as hard as you can, with your other hand, you won't be able to move the finger. You stiffen it, you use your muscles to contract that joint. So if, imagine you're putting a 10-pound weight off that finger. You'd want to stiffen that to protect the joint. Mm -hmm. But if you want to enhance the range of motion of the joint, you then have to relax the finger. You can shake it out, and then you can move that finger 90 degrees or so. 
You can't do that when it's under a huge load because that's an unstable position for the joint and you can't muscularly engage to protect the joint. In the spine, this is even more important. If the spine is bearing a large load, you want to, <clears throat> in weightlifting they call it lock it down. You want to keep it as close to neutral as possible because that's when the alignment of the vertebrae is such that it can tolerate the most stress. So you keep it neutral and then you co-contract the muscles around it. Stuart McGill calls this bracing and spacing. You keep the proper alignment and then you brace it a bit. Now there's a caveat to that. <laughs> you can't, you don't want to over brace it because the spine muscles themselves can put a huge compression force in between the discs. Mm. The vertebrae will start to squeeze together and can crush the disc. So this bracing is actually subtle, like bondas were said to be subtle. It's about 10 to 20% of your maximum muscular contraction. But when you're under stress, when the, the joint's under load, bring it as close to neutral as possible and then stiffen it. And that stiffness is gonna lock it down and it's gonna make it more stable. But the trade-off and the reason we don't like to do that in yoga is once you stiffen the joint, you can't move it very much. Like when you stiffened your finger, you've got very little range of motion. And since we wanna do deep back bends and forward folds and twists, we have to unstiffen the spine to move it. Well, that's making it unstable, which is the worst time to put a load onto it. If you're just doing a seated twist in yoga, there's not much load on the spine. You can relax the spine and twist, no problem. But let's suppose you're doing that in a forward fold or a back bend. Now you've got a huge lever acting on the vertebrae and you're twisting them. Now they're unstable, they're under load, that's more likely to injure the joint than if you stiffened it and reduced its range of motion. Mm. Yeah, so that, that, was, that was part of my question is how, like some examples for in, in yoga practice where one might be practicing in a way to emphasize stability of the spine and how might one practice it with the emphasis of increasing or maintaining natural mobility? Well, I think there's uh, a yin way and a yang way to do this. <laughs> and these aren't normal yogic terms, but in a yin yoga posture, we don't put a lot of muscular effort into the poses. Like say we wanna to work to enhance the range of motion of flexion. You might come into a butterfly pose, round your spine and fold forward. There's not a lot of stress on the spine from the weight of the upper body, that's about it. And so you take the load off and then you come into it. If you're doing a back bend, you might come into a sphinx pose, like a cobra or a seal type pose. Again, the spine isn't going through a lot of compressive stress. However, if we want to enhance the muscular stability of it, then we are going to have to stress the spine. We're going to have to keep it very neutral. A great example of that would be plank pose, chaturanga, upper push-up position. Here, the spine is neutral. You have a nice normal lordotic curve and you're engaging all the core muscles to keep the body straight. Mm -hmm. So that's a good way to enhance stability. Mm -hmm. Another one would be what we call the, I call it the balancing cat. You're on all fours, you extend one hand forward, the opposite leg backward. Again, that keeps the spine in neutral, but you're, you're engaging all the muscles in the core to stay there. That's the safe way to strengthen the core muscles when the spine is neutral. If you want to enhance the range of motion, then you have to come into a yin-like way, take the stress off, and then it's safe to move the spine into a back bend or into a forward bend. One way not to do that would be saying, drop back to wheel nice and slow. Because when you bring your arms over your head and you're doing a back bend, you've got a huge lever there, and the, the, the disc between the vertebrae is experiencing a stress called shear. 
I should back up and say there's two types of stresses the spine experiences. One is compression, where the bones are stacked on top of each other, one bone's pushing the other bone, and the spine is designed to withstand a fair bit of compression. The other stress is when one vertebrae tries to slide off the other, like the top one may slide forward. That's called shear, and we're not designed to tolerate that very much. So you can imagine if you're doing a deep backbend slowly, the top vertebrae is trying to slide downward over the lower vertebra. That's a huge shear force. To counteract that, we have to engage the muscles to compress the bones together tighter. But you can overdo that. You can get too much compression. But you need to do that to avoid the shear. But now you're in the worst of both worlds. We can't tolerate the shear. We can't tolerate the compression because we have this huge load on the spine. That's not the best way to treat the spine for most people. Yeah. No, it, kind of, it brings to mind a phrase that you've been that, that I saw towards the end of the book: uh, high risk, low reward exercises <laughs> or postures. Which I think is a really good one to for for teachers to sort of internalize that that uh, not every pose is really going to promise much reward and and, and comes with a, a huge potential liability. Yeah, I collected in my yoga career a whole bunch of these high risk, low reward poses by hurting myself. Yeah. I did lotus way too long, and I broke both my menisci in my left and right knee. And there's really not that much advantage to being able to do lotus pose versus sitting cross-legged. Yeah. And the same to me with headstand. You know, if you're a light, thin person, you don't have that much weight on your neck. But if you're a 220-pound linebacker, headstand's not a good pose for you. Yeah. <laughs> there's just way too much stress onto those vertebrae. Uh, I want to back up for a second because as you were talking about the examples of an exercise geared towards uh, enhancing mobility using a yin type posture versus uh, an exercise geared towards strengthening stability with uh, say the plank or the chaturanga. Um, in my mind, I can imagine a kind of potential cognitive dissonance for people in the yin community that might hear that and get a little turned around. And by that I mean, in yin, we, you know, and I'm, I'm crediting you and Paul and other te teachers, but the idea is that in yin yoga, we are uh, seeking out positive stresses through an appropriate amount of load placed on those tissues. And we're, and we're trying to, you know, increase their health through uh, a stress that's going to activate a physiological response to repair and, and maintain those tissues. So. Right. To, to to sort of move into this other paradigm of thinking like oh in in yin we're not it's actually a deloaded or an unloaded dynamic doesn't match with kind of some of the other language and intentions that we hear around yin yoga so can you connect those two dots yeah that's a good point to clarify i'm not saying that there'll be no load at all we want to minimize the load and compare it to say a weightlifter an Olympic athlete who's going to deadlift a thousand pounds off the floor. That's going to put a huge compressive load on his, his spine. He's better make sure the spine is neutral and he's stiffened the core to be able to take that. But if we're just doing, say, a forward fold, we're just bringing our arms out to the side and we're folding forward, we've unloaded the spine. Now, the spine still has a load. There's your body weight on it. And just using your body weight in that manner for a forward fold should be totally within the capabilities of the spine, the ligaments, and everything else. But if we were to start doing that forward fold with, say, 20-pound sandbags in both hands, now we're overly loading the spine. We're increasing the stress there. Or, or having uh, 
maybe a 150 to 200 pound teacher sitting on our spine. <laughs> right. So when I say unload the spine, I'm saying just let your normal body weight be the load you need. So when you're coming back into sphinx pose or seal pose, yeah, you are putting a stress into there. There is a load, but it's a minimal amount of load. But imagine that, say you're, say you're on your forearms propped up in cobra or sphinx pose. You are loading the lower back. You can tolerate that. But imagine now you're doing camel. And instead of having your hands behind you taking the load off your lower back, you have your hands folded at Anjali Mudra at your heart. Now there's no support for your upper body except for the vertebrae in your back. You've added a huge lever, like a long teeter-totter, and you've got your whole upper body weight being supported in those joints. Now we've increased the amount of load there beyond a normal capacity for most people. So when I say deload, I'm not saying there's no load at all. In yin yoga, we do have a stress. But even in yin yoga, we say time is more important than intensity. We're not trying for the maximum load in yin yoga. We want to put a load on and let it linger because it's the time that really makes the creep and all the other changes occur. So yeah, you need some load, not maximum, let it linger. In yin, in yang, sorry, there we do want to increase the load, but we need to do that in a safe way for the joint. Chaturanga is putting quite a load on the, the lower back, but we're keeping it neutral and we're bracing it with all the core muscles. So to summarize some of the final points in this part of the conversation, we can say that when you are trying to strengthen your spine, or your spine is being loaded under a weight, you want to keep the spine as neutral as possible and stiffen the muscles around it. But when you want to work on mobilizing the spine, you want to have the spine unloaded, that is without much weight upon it, and gently bring it through its tolerable ranges of motion. And this is a good case for both yang and yin yoga. I'll stop there for now, and in the next episode of Everyday Sublime, Bernie and I will pick up the conversation discussing spinal neutrality in greater depth, as well as nuances around symmetry, functional asymmetry, and dysfunctional asymmetry. More good stuff to come, and I look forward to sharing that conversation with you. Bernie's new book, Your Spine, Your Yoga, is now available, and there's a link for you in the show notes. And again, his books are essential fixtures in every smart yoga teacher's library. So do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of Your Spine, Your Yoga. And if you're interested in training in or studying yin yoga with me, please check out yinyogaschool.com. That's yinyogaschool.com. Thanks so much for listening today, and I'll see you in the next episode.